Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to BMO Financial Group's conference called COVID-19. It's what it means this week. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Belsky. Thanks, Grace, and good morning, everyone, and hope everyone in Canada had a great holiday weekend. This is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. On behalf of BMO Financial Group, thank you for joining us for our weekly COVID-19 coronavirus call with Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer at WebMD, and three subject matter experts from BMO Financial Group, which includes today BMO's own Deputy Chief Economist, Michael Gregory, followed by Ben Jeffrey, our U.S. rate strategist and fixed income strategy at BMO Capital Markets, and myself, Brian Belsky, in terms of stock market implications for both Canada and the United States. We also will have questions uh, following our formal comments. As we get started, just a reminder that uh, we point you toward our BMO disclosures via the web link enclosed at the bottom of the invitation that you have received. Also, given that we're talking about very sensitive medical information, just a reminder that if you need or seek medical advice, please directly consult your physician and or medical professional. As a reminder, Dr. White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades now. Dr. White is the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD. In this role, he leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. FDA. Please also keep in mind that Dr. White is a frontline soldier fighting the coronavirus as he continues to see patients in and around the Washington, D.C. and Maryland area. Area, And with that, Dr. White, I'm going to hand the ball off to you. Well, thank you, Brian, for including me today. I always like to put things into context and start where we are with data. In terms of coronavirus cases around the world, we're currently at nearly 4.9 million cases around the world with over 320,000 deaths. In Canada, uh, and here's a point to consider, that Canada is 14th in terms of all countries in a hierarchy of cases, with over 78,000 cases and over 5,800 deaths. And you may have seen in the news over the past couple of days, uh, looking at those deaths, over 80% of those deaths have been in long-term care facilities. And there's really been an effort in Canada to address the safety of folks in long-term care facilities. So it's an important data point when you're thinking about uh, reopening and where things are around an entire country, province, or state. In the United States, with the most number of cases and deaths, there's over 1.5 million cases and 91,000, over 91,000 deaths. But I pointed out before, the numbers actually continue to change. New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Massachusetts, and California, so those five states, 
continue to account for over 60% of all cases and over half of all deaths. So that's something to keep in mind. What's been in the news over the past week or so, I'm sure you saw yesterday with Moderna announcing a phase one study for vaccines. Only 45 people, ages 18 to 50, who received three different dose levels of a potential vaccine. And then an additional 60 people over the age of 55 are currently being enrolled in the study, but we don't have information on those persons. And they used varying doses of the vaccine. And what they found is encouraging news, increasing immune responses, including boosting certain antibodies, these neutralizing antibodies, to levels at or below those seen in blood samples um, that were collected from what's called convalescent plasma. Remember, people that have recovered from the virus and have developed vaccine uh, antibodies. And the antibodies also included both the binding antibodies, which attach to viruses, but don't necessarily prevent them from infecting cells, so they bind. But the neutralizing bodies, antibodies which they produce, which most tests don't measure, but remember this is in research, which do block an infection. And the US FDA has cleared the company to begin phase two trials, and that typically involves several hundred people and Moderna expects to start phase three in July, which could include thousands of people. So this is progress, and this is an accelerated timeline. But remember, many uh, drug trials don't um, proceed to fruition. There's challenges. We're talking about looking at 45 people versus millions, if not billions. There's a lot of talk about getting a vaccine by the fall. Is that realistic? I think we have to continue to look at data. Certainly, there's discussions around having it available for first responders. No one thinks that it's going to be widely available to everyone around the world. And and various companies have talked about increasing production. But this is all still in the hypothetical. I think we'll continue to learn more over the next few weeks. But it's encouraging data, but we also have to be practical and, and let history be our guide. Let's talk a little bit about reopening around the world. We're seeing it all over including in Italy, uh, which has certainly been significantly impacted by the coronavirus. Venice has started to reopen. And here in North America, stay-at-home or shelter-in-place orders um, have been lifted in almost every state in the United States. And, and, and some provinces in Canada are starting to restrict um, what previously were these locket um, stay-at-home and shelter-in-place orders for businesses. We're starting to see those restrictions for businesses and public places really being eased up. And we have to think about expectations from a medical and scientific and public health perspective. Pa- cases are going to go up. We know that. Cases are going up. And so are people returning out and about to work and in other aspects of society. And I mentioned we're seeing increased cases. And I, I want to point out that it's a little bit more complicated than kind of the initial knee-jerk reaction. So the initial reaction, well, of course, cases are going up because there is more testing. And that's true. But sometimes the increased cases are occurring in clusters. And we have to look at the data carefully from a public health perspective as we think about policy decisions. So what I mean by those clusters in Texas and some other states, there were a large number of increased cases that were localized 
as many of you may have heard, to meat packing companies. Um, so it wasn't truly across the entire state. We've seen some events, uh, large social events, where people have become infected uh, by that. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, what's really going to be telling is uh, Texas and some other states here in the United States are, are starting to um, put out guidelines revolving around sleepaway camps. So we'll see the public's appetite um, for aspects of activities for kids. We'll try to maintain social distancing and have some sense of normalcy. That's what we're really going to be seeing over the next few weeks. But what we also want to know besides those new cases, we also have to look at positivity of test results. So what I mean by that is if you have a large percentage of cases that are positive from testing, large people are testing positive, that means you're not testing enough people nowadays because you're only testing the most serious people. And from an epidemiological standpoint, we want to have a larger population of people that we're testing. So we really want to see it below 10%. And many states right now are still above 10% in terms of their positivity. So they're not testing enough people. I want to see hospitalizations, and that's pretty easy to count overall, and obviously see deaths. But I'm also interested in some type of acuity index. And we really haven't developed that yet. We're seeing some studies where we talk about the issue of comorbidities. We know most patients that don't do well have comorbidities, heart disease, diabetes, cancer. But we'd love to think about some type of acuity index for patients. And we're starting to talk about that in the medical community. The other point that you have to remember in terms of what we're seeing in cases is there really is usually this 10 to 14 day, the period that we're behind. Remember this incubation period. So it's still a little too early to tell where we are in North America and to some degree around the world because we're just starting uh, to tip our toes into reopening. But we are going to see more of that. Many of you are probably familiar with you know this concept that we're having of this quarantine fatigue. The weather is getting better. People are starting to see some improvements. People want to get out and about and return to a new normal or perhaps a phrase I heard the other day was the next normal. But the challenge is going to be from a public health perspective. When we see a lot of folks without masks that aren't practicing social distancing, how is that going to impact your broader local community? Because in some ways, we're only as strong as our weakest link in terms of infection control. And, and that's where we really need to get more focus on learning to live with the virus while at the same time um, being able to have social distancing and being able to reopen the economy. I think what we're going to see is expanded testing. We're going to see continued tracking of folks who have the virus and improved treatment options. So those are all good aspects. What we've also been hearing a lot about lately is a surge of antibody testing despite some recent discussions around accuracy of some of these tests, especially as it relates to individual decision-making. What we really want to know is in terms of populations. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest, I actually did an antibody test. So I felt I had some, um, you know, fever several weeks ago, and 
Um, I went to do an antibody test, got the results back to a blood draw, so I didn't do point of care. I, I went in to a lab uh, with high sensitivity and specificity, and the test came back negative. And I will tell you, I was disappointed. And isn't that crazy that in the setting of infectious disease, I'm disappointed that I did not have the infection? And the reason why I point this out and share this story is because in some ways, what are we saying? We're saying that immunity becomes a social advantage, right? That somehow then there's this idea that, you know, maybe you don't need to be as cautious. Maybe you can be uh, out there and about before other people. And I'm not sure that's the case because we do know that even with a positive test result, if you're testing millions of people with high sensitivity and specificity, there are going to be some inaccurate results. So what's the advice if you have a positive? That you do another test. We also have to think about the practicality of that. It's hard enough to do one test. Now we're going to do two tests. There's issues. It's not just the issues of the testing and the testing kits. It's the issues of the supplies, the gloves, the syringes, the vials. The, the staff. So we really need to think that through as we think about uh, testing strategies and they continue to evolve. But I wanted to throw that out there that in some ways uh, immunity testing, and I'll tell you there was a line there uh, that people waited in their cars, um, in some ways is becoming a, a social advantage. It's not just a curiosity. And I'm not sure that's the right path in terms of thinking about that. The other aspect that I wanted to talk about is that elective surgery and dental procedures are resuming in many states. The issue is about dental is obviously you're in people's mouth. There's perhaps respiratory spread, so we need to, you know, be careful. But at the same time, there's a recognition of the social determinants of health. Um, it's about access to fresh fruits and vegetables. It's about access to being able to partake in, you know, physical activity and get out and about, and at the same time, um, resume elective procedures. And other folks have mentioned on other calls how the healthcare industry in the United States has lost a quarter of a million jobs in physician offices, and healthcare practices have lost almost another quarter of a million. So as we start to rev back up, you know, is there concern that we have enough staff and personnel uh, to meet the need uh, for folks as we begin to resume. And then finally, I want to remind people about what we're seeing, you know, a growing mental health epidemic. The issues of social distancing, loneliness, food insecurity, uncertainty is exacerbating the mental health of folks who already have certain conditions and then actually um, perhaps creating uh, a PTSD in, in others. So it's certainly something that we need to be addressing. I think there's a greater recognition of the impact of COVID-19 on mental health. And we're talking about the use of telehealth and, and, and telepsychiatry because we're seeing that the long-term health aspects of COVID-19, other than just having an infection, are going to be with us for a while. So we need to address the mental health. We need to address the weight gain that many of us are experiencing uh, being in, and I'll share later today a, a survey that we did at WebMD that talked about 40% of respondents have said they've gained about eight pounds over the past few weeks. And if this continues over time, we're really going to exacerbate the obesity epidemic. 
But in, in closing, I'd say, despite all of this, we're, we're really seeing some and some light at the end of the tunnel. And I've used that phrase multiple times. And it's iterative. So it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we have a bright light. But we're, we're starting to see that because we're, we're seeing that um, we're having a reopening. We're trying to balance multiple interests. And in many ways, it's going to be iterative. We're going to have some, you know, start and stop. But we have a pathway to move to the next normal. And I'd be happy to answer questions at the time uh, when we have them. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Brian. Thanks, Dr. Wright. Appreciate that. And we will have questions a little bit later in the call. And with that, we're going to follow through now on to our subject matter expert at the Emo Financial Group. And leading us off will be Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory. Go ahead, Michael. Thanks, Brian. Well, uh, since we last chatted last Monday, the economic indicators have uh, continued to reveal just how deep this recession is. Uh, in the U.S., uh, retail sales and food services fell more than 16% in April, uh, nearly doubling March's drop and posting the worst performance since data began in 1967. We saw this morning that housing starts fell more than 30% in April after falling more than 18% in March and posting its worst performance since the data there began in 1959. But, of course, the cake is taken by industrial production. It fell more than 11% in April and it more than doubled March's drop. And in fact, that 11.2% decline we saw in April was the largest decline since the Federal Reserve began producing industrial production data back in 1921. In other words, uh, uh, you know, what we saw in April was worse than any single month uh, uh, during the Great Depression. Now, this back-to-back uh, uh, -back sort of monthly punches to the economy has literally uh, knocked inflation out. Uh, we've seen the core CPI, which uh, at, in recently as February was running at a 2.4% year-over-year rate, which was a cycle high. It's now down a full percentage point to just 1.4% year-on-year in April. And in fact, in the months alone, uh, it fell the most since uh, the core inflation series went back to the mid-1950s in Canada. Not as much data has come out over the past week, but, uh, but we did see existing home sales for April. They were down more than 56% in the month alone. That more than tripled the decline we had in March. And needless to say, that's the worst on record, although the data only goes back to 1980 for these figures. Now, as bad as the numbers look now, as the economies begin to reopen, the numbers will start to improve. Uh, probably, you know, May is going to be another dismal month, uh, and uh, although it won't be as bad as April, uh, it'll be another month of contraction. In other words, we'll continue to see job losses on both sides of the border and, and the unemployment rates continuing to rise. But we do expect that the economy will pick up as these uh, reopenings continue, and we're looking for 25 to 35 percent annualized growth in the second half of the year on both sides of the border. Now, how robust that recovery is, the initial phases of that recovery, will be dictated by two things. And uh, Dr. White alluded uh, to one of them is the fact that, you know, in the absence of a vaccine, and we're seeing this with surveys of, uh, among uh, consumers, is that there will be a segment of the population that will shy away from crowds. They won't go to restaurants. They won't take public transit. They won't go to sporting events, even if they were uh, allowed to go. 
Uh, and, and that suggests that those parts of the economy are not going to rebound as robustly. And secondly, we do think that some of these jobs that we've lost, that we'll still see continued uh, uh, those losses for this month, uh, will not rebound uh, fully. And that, too, adds a little bit of a headwind on the economy. As a result, even though we expect you know, this 25 to 35 percent annualized growth in the second half of the year is still decent growth, at least in, uh, in, the, in for next year, we do think that it'll be a tough uh, sledding to get uh, to retrace all of the ground we lost uh, during this recession. And in fact, in both Canada and the United States, we don't think we'll get there probably till the end of next year. Uh, and with that, I'll turn things over to my colleague uh, Ben Jeffrey. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, everybody. Um, in in the Treasury market, in particular, um, the what what has been most remarkable over the past several weeks, and frankly, the past few months, has been um, the durability of the range in Treasury yields, despite um, some of the worst economic data we've seen in a generation. Um, exactly, exactly as Michael has highlighted, the the new and in, the new information that the market is receiving now is really framing how severe this recession that we find ourselves in ultimately will end up being. However, from the market's perspective, it seems that whether it be treasuries, equities, or other asset classes, that really investors have moved on from trading the depths of the recession and all attention is now squarely on the reopening process and exactly how quickly the economy will ultimately end up recovering from this. In terms of price action, this has left 10-year yields between 54 basis points and 78 basis points. And while we've seen those levels challenged on occasion over the past few months, there's really been no concerted effort at a break. And to, to us, that what that suggests is that it's really going to be up to some of the more higher frequency released economic data think economic, or excuse me, think jobless claims, think some more frequent updates from the Fed that are going to show just how quickly the economy gets get, gets back on its feet and how quickly hiring returns. Chair Powell this week emphasized that it will, in fact, be a long grind out of this downturn, and his circling of 2022 as the, the time when the economy really recovers what has been lost due to coronavirus makes sense in the context that we've now settled into this range in treasuries. However, as the second half of the year comes into focus and 2021 approaches, there's certainly reason to expect some strong growth, strong hiring trends, a pickup in economic activity that will ultimately weigh on treasuries and push 10-year yields back up to that 1%, 125 level. In this context, it's even more remarkable that we've seen such resiliency in the equity market. And really what that's a function of is the fact that the Fed has acted in a nearly unprecedented manner to deliver as much monetary policy accommodation as possible. And we've also seen a great deal of stimulus from the fiscal side as well. Clearly, risk asset investors have taken solace in this given the gains that we've seen in the stock market. And meanwhile, bonds are content to more or less hold the range, something that we expect will continue for at least the next several weeks. Along with the stimulus, of course, has come massive borrowing needs from the Treasury Department. And Treasury supply is one of the most frequently asked questions that we receive 
in terms of how have how have such large auction size increases not translated into higher treasury yields. And here I'll say we do, in fact, see moves in yields based off auction announcements, this most recent refunding announcement being the latest example of a three or four basis point sell-off and an adjustment in the shape of the curve, steeper in the case of longer and larger, longer end auction sizes. However, in terms of the general level of yields, really that continues to be a function of the longer-term growth outlook and the and inflation. So the fact that we're seeing such large auction sizes generally be taken down with ample demand at auction and many of the auctions themselves being the lowest on record speaks to a continued structural demand for treasuries so long as the dollar remains the global reserve currency. This is something that will continue. And so while rising supply is bearish for treasuries on the margin, we generally are more reliant on longer-term trends in terms of growth and inflation to set the outright level of yields. Finally, one other question that is very commonly offered is what may be next from the Fed or other branches of the government to help offer stimulus to the economy? Negative rates from the Fed is one that is very commonly referenced and is actually being priced into the futures market in early 2021, middle 2021. And despite the fact that Chair Powell and pretty much every other FOMC member has come out explicitly against the idea, this reflection continues to be shown in the futures market, which really speaks to the anticipation that there may be further downside to growth in the future, and we're not out of the woods yet. Fed President Kashkari said, never say never on the negative rates front. We think this makes sense, but generally are extremely skeptical that negative policy rates will come to pass in the U.S. in the foreseeable future, with the Fed preferring to keep rates at the effective lower bound of zero to 25, of zero to 25 basis points, and that should keep the front end of the Treasury market anchored to policy expectations. Meanwhile, 10-year, 10 and 30-year Treasury yields will eventually start to rise as the economic recovery becomes a bit clearer. And with that, I will uh, pass it off back to Brian. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. With respect to stocks, both in Canada and the United States, clearly Canada closed yesterday, so wasn't able to enjoy uh, the big move uh, in that we saw in the U.S. stock market, especially considering uh, the vaccine news that we you know, received over the weekend. However, continue to find it very interesting that most clients around the world are, quite frankly, missing the point that uh, Canada up until the end of last week's actually outperformed not only the NASDAQ, but the S&P 500 from the lows that we have incurred on March 23rd. I think that speaks to a broader theme. And many investors want to continue to think and play the themes with respect to COVID, the mobile worker, the mobile society, vaccines, healthcare, things such as that. And then on the negative side, uh, this intense focus on the consumer, when and how we're going to open, what, what is what revenue look like. What does continued guidance look like today, for instance, Home Depot suspended their guidance as well. Uh, and so what we think the, a major theme um, going forward through this is this whole notion of dollar-denominated assets. We continue to believe that North America is the best house in an increasingly volatile neighborhood with respect to the world, especially concerning what's happening in emerging markets and China's impact on that and supply chain stress. Uh, and potential volatility there, but also Europe as well. 
Europe's number one trade partner, as you know, uh, is uh, the emerging market. So I think that those two kind of continued volatile partners will continue to bring assets back to not only the United States, but Canada. I think by and large, that's why you're seeing continued strength in Canada. Now we're going to see continued earnings come out for the quarters in Canada over the next week or two. We'll get a better, even better picture with respect to what the biggest sector of all in Canada, financials, are going to be doing. Uh, but given the fact that energy has rebounded, that has also clearly helped Canada. And two, as well, is the intense focus on a near-term basis with respect to inflation fears going out in 2021, 22, 23. And I think that's by and large what we've seen a certain bid and strong performance in uh, gold. We still prefer the United States over Canada from a longer-term perspective, especially given the more diversified nature of the sector. We do believe that continued strength with respect to technology, not just because they've been leading into during and out of COVID, but given the fact that we're seeing the strongest earnings growth and the most diversified earnings growth with respect to technology and other industries and sectors, including healthcare and industrial, uh, with respect to artificial intelligence and, of course, all of the technological advances within healthcare. We also continue to be overweight communication services in both sectors, in both countries, I'm sorry, uh, with respect to, again, the near-term and broader secular themes of the, the mobile society. Uh, we like consumer discretionary uh, as well in the United States and REITs in both countries. With that, we're going to open it up uh, for questions, and we have received some questions uh, from the audience. Uh, but first off, we're going to ask a question uh, to Dr. White. And last week, we talked about the, the stress on on the healthcare industry in hospitals in particular, and you talked a little bit about that today. And I think um, something that's kind of been left to the side is with all of this work uh, with respect to the FDA uh, and what they're doing on coronavirus and COVID-19, is there a possibility, Dr. White, that the FDA may miss other deadlines and goal dates with respect to other products? that are coming through and uh, within the FDA approval process? Yeah, and folks are starting to get concerned about PDUFA goals, and, and many may be familiar with PDUFA as the Prescription Drug User Fee Agreement. So under that agreement, um, sponsors will pay money uh, to FDA, and that allows FDA to get the necessary staff to continue to review products. But... FDA has always had a challenge in hiring um, professionals. It's a challenge in any space. It's a competitive market and the government hiring process is laborious, I can tell you from having worked there. So if you think about all this talk on coronavirus, what's happening to the resources of the FDA? And I did have a call with Janet Woodcock, the center director at FDA on drug evaluation and research, and she did express some concern about PDUFA goals and the flexibility that may need to be um, considered, especially drugs in the infectious disease space. There's one review division, there's a finite number of workers. So I do think we have to, to look at that very closely that there could be some missed goal dates. I think there's a real possibility that that may happen and what impact will that have on bringing a drug to market? Well, thank you for uh, saying that and adding that color. You know, you did talk a little bit about testing in your formal comments as well, and I guess maybe a follow-up question would be, 
we're roughly two or three months um, into this lockdown. Um, and we have three months, three or four months to go before many people are starting to, you know, worry about a potential second wave. So if you could kind of give us a, a picture of the evolution of testing, how it has changed even in this first three months of this, mm-hmm. and what do you look for testing to look like three months from now when, again, people are going to be even more worried about uh, the second wave coming in the fall? Right. And it may seem like I, I'm down on testing, but what I will say and I said this before, testing, I think, is a success story of medical device innovation. We were nowhere four or five months ago in terms of this type of testing for this uh, coronavirus. And look at where we are today in terms of numerous diagnostic testing and numerous antibody testing, including point of care in both and even at-home kits for testing. With anything, there are challenges of diagnostic accuracy. It's not unique uh, to this particular disease. And in general, we haven't really measured antibodies for most diseases to see if people are quote-unquote cured. So we have had a lot of hiccups along the way. I think the important element has been communication. What do we do to advise patients and doctors when they get a result which may seem inconsistent with their symptoms. And it's always about listening to the patient and sometimes doing another test. The challenge has been, as I've talked about, is the equipment that's often necessary to do this. And now if we start to do second tests on people uh, and third tests, if you have, you know, two opposite results, you know, how do you referee this? It can be challenging. But the good news is I think we're continuing to see iterations in terms of increased accuracy. You know, the antibody test didn't have 99% sensitivity and almost 99% specificity. Some are 100% specificity. Um, so we've made progress on that, and I think we're going to continue. So I think in two or three months, we're going to be much further along in terms of diagnostic accuracy, and we're going to have a better sense of how do we use those results on a personal level for you to make a decision about your own care, and then as well as epidemiologically in terms of what's going on in your community. Because as we think about reopening and we open more and more, I think testing is so important because I want to make decisions based on the infection rate of the local community. Sure, it's important to know what's happening in New York City, but if you live in Phoenix or Denver or Houston or Quebec, um, you know, it matters more what's happening in your community. And I think that's where we're going to continue to see evolution. Thanks. That's great. Uh, on to uh, Mr. Michael Gregory, uh, Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin and Fed Chairman Powell are, are speaking to Congress today. However, Fed Chair Powell did sound quite, quote, unquote, dour last week with respect to medium-term economic uh, prospects in the United States. Do you share his concern, Michael, and, and did that change anything with respect to your forecast for the United States? Uh, well, well uh, it, it has. I mean, we, we share the same kind of concerns that uh, uh, Chair Powell has in that, you know, we do think that, uh, in particular, you know, uh, some of the job losses that we've seen will, 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 will persist. Uh, part of that is simply because of the, 
you know, the, the, the phased in reopenings across, uh, uh, jurisdictions, uh, um, lingering physical distancing rules, things like that means not everybody will get those jobs back right away. We do think some businesses will actually pair personnel to drive cost savings. Uh, others, uh, unfortunately will succumb to insolvency and, and that will, uh, uh, they'll go out of business. And, and finally, again, in this absence of a vaccine, we do think even business confidence may not fully uh, uh, recover to where it was before, and that may be a bit of a drag on uh, on hiring. So the, so the fact that we're going to get this uh, hiring or this jobless rate remaining persistently high, I, I think adds a bit of a damper on the consumer side as well. And of course, that's going to uh, uh, you know, uh, color the entire uh, economic outlook. Uh, and I do think on top of that, you've got uh, higher private sector debt burdens in, in, the, in the period ahead. Uh, that, too, is going to weigh on growth. At some point, we're going to get some kind of fiscal consolidation, although I, I think that's going to be more several years out. So when you add everything up, it does seem that the economy is not going to be as robust as we thought it was going to be previously. And as I mentioned before, we, we only think that we'll get we'll get back all of the ground lost uh, due, uh, due to the recession in both Canada and the United States by the fourth quarter of, of next year. Uh, we will get some strong growth rates. But, you know, the hole is pretty deep and, and, uh, the, the recovery just a little bit constrained by those factors I mentioned. And as a result, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have a, a pretty persistent output gap, which is going to remain this damper on inflation. And the good news from that, if there's some good news, is the fact that there won't be any urgency for, for central banks, for example, to reverse course quickly because inflation, in, in fact, won't be a problem. In fact, I suspect it'll be the opposite. It would be disinflation would be more of the concern on both sides of the border. Those are great questions. And just following through from Michael with respect to what Dr. White said about uh, those five states in the United States in terms of 60% of the cases and almost 50% of the deaths that are still concentrated again in those five states. As you look at the economic recovery uh, for both the United States um, and Canada, are there specific provinces in Canada where you're really looking for signals to say, hey, things are, is there, is there a specific province that, so for instance, Saskatchewan is really cooking, is, is, is something like that, or is, is it going to be the Midwest or specific regions in the United States? Are there kind of separate comments you can make for both countries? Sure. Well, I do think, uh, again, where the infection rates and where, where the uh, uh, pandemic was most severe, those provinces, those states, uh, will lag behind uh, as, as it, uh, you know, you'll have more of a confidence impact, they'll have more of a staggered uh, reopening. But for those jurisdictions where that wasn't the case, uh, I think British Columbia, for example, in Canada, uh, uh, far less uh, uh, concerns about the pandemic than, than say, in Quebec or Ontario. And, and uh, Dr. Wiley mentioned Texas, for example. Uh, uh, again, uh, with uh, and, and, and there's also the other benefit too, if the fact that you know some of these segments of the uh, economy uh, will benefit from uh, you know relatively uh, good weather. Uh, and it's not so much the virus performing uh, uh, better in, in warmer weather; it's the fact that if you're looking for recoveries in the restaurant industry, and for example, where you have more of a patio uh, facilities, uh, and uh, would be uh, you probably get more of a, of a rebound in those areas. So. You know, we, 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 although we will get sort of a broad-based recovery across the United States and Canada, certain provinces and certain states will outperform, and uh, and, and the businesses in those uh, uh, jurisdictions will do better as well. 
Thanks, Michael. Uh, we can't uh, let Ben Jeffrey go without asking him a question. You brought up negative rates, Ben, and you also brought up the, the comment with respect to Governor uh, Kashkari talking about never say never. Do you uh, sense any kind of dissension on the Fed with respect to negative rates? Um, and could that be a potential thing that we, as we are, we all love to read all the Fed notes? Is that something that we should be paying a little bit deeper attention on? Not just dissension potentially on, on negative rates, but just dissension overall in the Fed with respect to direction from here over the next several quarters. I think the the messaging we've seen over the past several weeks has been a an attempt by the Fed to show um, a, a unified front in regards to a reluctance to use to use negative rates. Uh, Kashkari historically has been um, the most dovish member on the FOMC, so even the fact that in his mind policy negative policy rates are a a never say never um, sort of idea. That really suggests that on the committee more broadly, the, the skepticism on their effectiveness is, is going to be pretty high. However, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that we're seeing continued positions put on in the Fed Funds futures market reflecting an anticipation of negative policy rates around the calendar turn later into, later into 2021 really i in in my mind is a reflection of exactly what you say brian is that there there is the expectation that as the economy recovers and comes out of the initial wave of covid-19 um there is obviously um, obviously the risk of of wave number 2 and and even um even another round of lockdowns hopefully not of course but um clearly clearly a risk on the horizon and so the fact that we may see um, a, a round two of, of what's going on and with policy now at zero and limitless QE occurring and the long list of stimulus efforts rolled out by both the Treasury Department and the Fed, it is reasonable to think that in the event um, another drop-off um, in, the, in the autumn or winter um, of this year, in the event that that does become severe enough, you, it's, it's not out of the question to think that there will be some dissension on the FOMC and, and maybe there will be, um, a change in tune from those who, who have voiced their opinions against it. So you look on the, on the dovish side of the committee, whether it be Kashkari, um, James Bullard, Raphael Bostic, um, some of those more historically dovish members could certainly become um, more vocal in, in a support for negative rates or at the very least, um, maybe not completely writing them off, but it'll, it will certainly be a, a space to watch over the next several quarters. Well, thanks, Ben. Great comments. And thank you so much for joining our call this week, Ben. I really appreciate your value add. Of course, always thankful to Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory for joining us. And, of course, Dr. John White really uh, setting the tone for all of these calls. As a reminder, uh, if you uh, please have any other questions from uh, your relationship manager at BMO, please reach out to that RM or visit uh, the webpage at bmocm.com. We also have our COVID-19 Insights podcast, uh, and we will be publishing a podcast under our banner uh, coming out tomorrow morning. Again, thank you so much for joining us. If you have any further questions, please reach out uh, to anyone here at BMO. We are here to help you. Please stay well and safe, and we will speak to you next week. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. 
you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public disclosure slash.